0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you have heard it dozens of times, if not hundreds. On the surface, it seems as though Jesus is telling his hearers how to love the unlovable or how even outcasts can find acceptability to God. It is there is a tendency to read this text as some sort of a script on how to live a good life. Find somebody who is difficult and then love her or love him. But there's a huge problem with a moralistic reading of this text. It's that the thinking of the go and do likewise with which Jesus concludes this story somehow solves the even bigger problem that we have in our relationship with God. It doesn't. A moralistic reading of the story of the Good Samaritan makes the death of Christ unnecessary because it puts us in the driver's seat for getting right with God. And such a reading cuts the legs right out from under the Christian faith. It reduces life to a simplistic message of pop culture. Peace and love, peace and love. Well, as nice as that all might sound, slogans do not really change the world. Slogans just make it easier for us to think that we're doing some good because we can go around spreading a shallow message to which many people can agree. So maybe we need to look a little bit deeper and accept the fact that sometimes... Things are actually hard. This lawyer or religious scribe that comes to Jesus in this text, he knows the Word of God inside and out. When Luke tells us that this lawyer wanted to put Jesus to the test, it means that this guy was just as hostile to Jesus as is Satan, who also put Jesus to the test in the wilderness after his baptism. So this encounter is not just a simple theological discussion that takes place at a Bible study. No, this guy wants to entrap Jesus as a false teacher of God's Word. And looking back at it as we can from our historical perspective, it's almost comical in a way. This scribe or lawyer thinks of himself as the expert. And he thinks that he's got Jesus on the hot seat and the one being examined. So this lawyer asks, how can I be sure that God will raise me from the dead along with all the righteous? Like any good rabbi, Jesus answers the question with other questions. What does God's word say? And the man gives him a textbook answer. He quotes from the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6-5, the one that is recited every day by devout Jews. And he also includes a quote from Leviticus chapter 19 about loving the person closest to you in the same way that you love yourself. So, love God with all your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' response affirms the man's answer. For Jesus quite knows the textbook too. But the religious scribe has not been able to trap Jesus as he'd hoped to do. And so he continues to state his theological position as being the correct answer, and then asks a new question And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus moves from a straightforward interpretation of the text into a story that illustrates that which is far more important. The question then begins to move from, Who is my neighbor? to, How does one be a neighbor? Of course, if you want to keep putting yourself in the driver's seat at this point, then Jesus' story will drive you right off a cliff. The most popular preachers in America today are often those who are popular because they can give their people some simple takeaways each week. Maybe a clever and catchy and convenient list of three ways to improve their life in the coming days. It can be a formula for packing in crowds of young people and oftentimes some not-so-young people who would like to be in their company so that they feel younger too. And a typical sermon might go something like this. Now this lawyer, in this lesson, he was a hypocrite. Just like the priest and the Levi were hypocrites. They talked a lot about God, but they didn't do what God wanted them to do. And since none of us wants to be a hypocrite like them let us think about three things we can do to be better neighbors. First, we'll collect an offering for the local shelter, and if if you can't give money, maybe you can volunteer some hours at the shelter. Second, if you have anger issues or know someone who's in trouble as a result of anger or violence, we have several support groups you could sign up for or to tell someone about. Please check the schedule of these on our website. And third... In the coming week, be on the lookout for someone who needs your help. And even if you're very busy, consider that God may have put this person in your life to interrupt it. So be a good Samaritan and care enough to get involved. And please pray, Lord, help me to learn how to be a better neighbor like the good Samaritan. Amen. But here's the strange part. That very same sermon could be preached in a church just like ours with a pipe organ and traditional hymns and liturgy and weekly communion too. The style of worship and music can be dramatically different from church to church, but the sermon can still be just as amazingly moralistic and shy of being fully Christian in almost any time and place. For any sermon that focuses on what you need to do to have a better life for God make it all about you, rather than pointing you to dependence upon God as the only real solution for just how rotten you are. The harder reading is for us to see ourselves as the one who has been robbed and beaten and left in that ditch half dead. And it's especially hard for men to see themselves as the ones in the story who need to be befriended, to be cared for and provided for, and to be unable to do it for ourselves. In fact, if you scratch beneath the surface just a little bit, I suspect that almost everyone in this room would rather be almost anyone else in the story except the man in the ditch. For we do not want to be beholden to anyone, to be helpless, to be dependent. In fact, we are so antithetical to this idea sometimes that if if we're given a gift, we're certainly pleased, but we're already thinking about when and how we can reciprocate and return the favor. I'll buy next time, we say, or we should invite you over to our place real soon. And that's why do-it-yourself religion and shallow spirituality are so popular in the world today. They fit into our quid pro quo ideal, the I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine world. Surely we think, if I really put my mind to it, I can be like this good Samaritan and not like those hypocritical religious people in the story. But it's interesting to note that the verb that Jesus uses to describe the good Samaritan compassion here in verse 33, that word is used elsewhere throughout the New Testament, but elsewhere it is only used to refer to God's compassion. Jesus' point is that this lawyer, this scribe, does not see himself as being in need of God's mercy and compassion. It's much like what Jesus tells us elsewhere about the two sons in Luke 15. For neither the prodigal son nor his older brother really loves their father. They're both just after what the old man has. And that makes them even more needy and more pathetic sons than either of them would care to admit. How about us? Too often the confession that we say at the beginning of our divine service isn't taken seriously enough. That's because we make ourselves self-obsessed and self-possessed. We try to remake the biblical God into one of our own image. We pray as if we want God to put our happiness above everyone else's. We try to reshape God so that He's neither a jealous God nor a judging God. We want to ignore the harsh reality of our sin and the condemnation that it demands and believe that God's love for us only means affirmation and acceptance. And if the truth be known, we also want to believe that if things feel right to us and if they meet our own desires, then that ought to be good enough for God to accept too. Just like pop culture or civic religion think, though, it's not just if we have peace and love that's good enough. Not at all. But of course, Jesus is not a teacher of morality like Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius. He's not a politician or a social justice advocate either. Jesus is God in human flesh. His death is not just some sort of tragic mistake that we ought to try to get past and forget so that we can have happier thoughts. His death and resurrection are the essence of God's compassion and mercy for sinners like you and like me. We have a down-to-earth God, one who came down to earth in flesh like ours in order to redeem us, to save us from that unholy trinity of sin, death, and the devil. As Martin Luther puts it, Jesus takes our sin and death and gives us the free gift of His eternal life and a right relationship with God our Father. When we are baptized with water in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are joined into the death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. We who are beaten and left for dead by the side of the road, by sin, death, and the devil, are rescued. We are raised from the dead. We are given the compassionate and the merciful promise of God. And then we find that we, by grace and by grace alone, are made children of God for Christ's sake alone. In this life, we will continue to be caught in the struggle between our old sinful flesh and the new child of the creation God puts into us. We do need God's compassion, and we need it not just once, but we need it continuously, day by day by day. And living in the covenant of our baptism means daily dying to ourselves and daily being raised from the dead with God's Son. We both have and need a loving Savior. Yes, holy baptism begins with a one-time washing with water, but it really is an ongoing way of life to continue in us until God calls us home. Every day a child of God returns to the waters of baptism by renouncing the forces of evil, the devil, and all of his empty promises. Every day the child of God confesses that God makes us and that God owns us, that he saves us and redeems us, that he forgives us and renews us. As Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we remember that Jesus Christ has rescued each and every one of us from our own Jericho roads, it then isn't our experience or our own doing that creates our concern for others. Rather, we recognize that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to those around us who are also beaten and left half dead. And they don't even often know it yet, do they? Like the religious scribe, people all around us every day may think of themselves as being really quite okay, just the way they are. They may have convinced themselves that the God that they have made in their own image simply has nothing but affirming things to say about them, no matter what it is they do. No matter what it is, they believe. They may think that they are neither in sin nor need rescue from it. They may believe that their faith in a God of their own making is somehow a get-out-of-jail-free card, something that glosses over their true need to be rescued from sin, death, and the devil through repentance and through faith in Christ's atoning and bloody sacrifice. Yes, sometimes all we can do is to tell other people who we are concerned about that we love them, that we will be there when they need us. But if someone is truly hell-bent on messing up his or her own life, we can't really stop them. Yes, sometimes loving interventions work, and sometimes that person just hasn't hit rock bottom yet. Sometimes you just have to let people go down their Jericho road until we realize, or they realize, that they can't get past it on their own. You see, Luther taught that the gospel is never coercive. You cannot force or argue someone into repenting and believing in the good news of Jesus Christ. All we can do is offer them the means of grace, the declared word of God, and the sacraments of baptism in Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of their sins. We can't make people admit that they need a Savior. We cannot force them to cry out for God's compassion and mercy. But remembering our own baptism into the Lord's death and resurrection, and being strengthened and forgiven in the receipt of His body and blood and bread and wine, we do go out into the world as His hands and His feet and His mouths. How will you be a neighbor now that I've rescued you? That was the message and the point of Jesus' story to this scribe. And then Jesus puts that same story into your life by His life, His death, and His resurrection. And He calls all of us, His brothers and His sisters in faith, to follow Him by giving our lives away in humble service daily. And in His holy name, Amen.